Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Gorgeous. All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode 19 of the Great Birth Rebellion. We're joined by Nigel Lee, who is a researcher. Are you from Queensland, Nigel? Yes. Yep. From a number of other places, but currently in Queensland, yes. And where are we? Episode 19. We want to discuss the perineal bundle today, and people might not have heard about that, but it's all going to be revealed. Uh, Nigel, you're one of B's research crushes. I don't know a lot about you personally. <laughs> Can you give us... My husband doesn't know I'm on this podcast with you today because I think if he did, he'd be petrified that I'm going to sign up for my PhD, which we've already been emailing about, but he doesn't know. Yeah. Nigel's going to be my PhD supervisor, but my husband doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. I've just told, said that he has to be because his work is in line with everything that I love. And if anyone's ever seen Nigel present, he has this incredible way of presenting evidence, but also using humour, which is what I like to do as well. So yeah, we're going to be a great team. My husband just doesn't know about it yet. So B wants to do a PhD with Nigel. Uh, So could you give us a brief introduction to yourself? Because I feel like you keep a low profile, but you've done some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, well, firstly, I'm a midwife, and I've been a midwife for for quite a long time. Did my training in the in the mid '80s and worked a lot in, well, predominantly in birth suites, but around sort of regional New South Wales and Victoria, uh, and then went overseas and did a stint working in the UK as a midwife in what they call us a fairly small hospital, but it did around about sort of three or four thousand births a year, and worked there as a practice developer midwife, and again predominantly on on the birth suite, and then came back to Australia and worked in Brisbane uh, as a team leader on the um, the birth suite at the Marta Hospital, which is Australia's largest maternity hospital. We did about 10,000 births a year, half public, half private. And I was there for about 15 years before completing a PhD around sterile water injections. And that was kind of part of a sort of a transition plan, you know, kind of a semi-retirement plan to, to move into, into academia. The retirement bit being no nights and weekends off, which was nice. It was getting a bit old for the night shift, getting a bit old and grumpy on nights. So I thought, no, I've got to do something about this. So then, so you did a PhD in sterile water injections. Yep. How old were you at that point? Oh, good grief. Um, I was, like a lot of midwives, you know, I came to research fairly late. So I was in my early 50s when I finished my PhD because we, we'd had the Queensland floods about the same time that we'd kind of finished data collection. So Amazing. That's that's inspiring for a lot of midwives, I think, actually. So then from your PhD, what happened then? Uh, then I got a job with the University of Queensland as a, as a midwifery lecturer, stroke sort of researcher, uh, and continued to do sort of my research on that. And then the last sort of 18 months, I've been fortunate enough to be in a, a research-only position and recently picked up a, an NHMRC investigator grant, which means that it'll hopefully fund me my research for the next few years. Well, they are lucrative, those grants. Yeah, well done you. That's phenomenal. Congratulations. That's huge. 
Yes, they're they're pretty competitive. So, I was, and you know, there aren't a lot of midwives to get them. So, um, I was pretty happy to to pick that up. Yeah, that's amazing. Go you. Yeah, Nigel is very much like the silent achiever in midwifery, and you just kind of you're, you're at a conference, and he's like the he's like the where's Wally kind of like just appears, and you see him, and then he's gone again. Like I spent the last conference being like, where's Nigel? I need to find him. I need to talk to him. But yeah, you are the kind of like you kind of the silent achiever, but you're doing incredible, incredible work. So let's dive into it today. We are going to talk about something that if, if you're pregnant, you need to know about. And if you're a midwife, you need to know about. So this really applies to everybody. I'm going to dive into the evidence of what is called the perineal bundle. So Nigel, do you want to explain it to everyone listening today? What is it? Well, well the, the perineal bundle is, is something that um, ha- has been around for quite some time in various guises in various countries. The WHA, which I remember stands for uh, Women's Hospitals Australia or something along that lines, decided that they, you know, put out the idea that there was a bit of a, a bit of a crisis in terms of maternity care in, in, in terms of, of severe perineal injury. And certainly, you know, this is something that we, we would all like to do something about. But interestingly, the, the numbers in, in terms of severe perineal injury haven't really increased since 2011. But yes, it'd be good to do something about it. You know, they, they, it has a significant impact upon women's health after birth, particularly in terms of not ongoing sexual health, but, but ramifications for any current births or any subsequent births. And so they were looking at ways of sort of putting together a bundle to try and reduce this. We've always had this kind of conversation primarily around sort of the, sort of the hands-off, hands-poised approach to birth and, and the, the bundles overseas that were developed initially in, in sort of Scandinavia were very focused on the uh, sort of hands-on approach which is a fairly sort of traditional approach despite the fact that many midwives use a hands-poised. The, the hands-poised is really the hands-on. Hands-off and hands-poised tends to go together whether you put your hand on the, the fetal head and the perineum or whether you just kind of have your hands there ready in case it, you think it needs it, whereas the hands-on kind of obligates the midwife to apply that pressure to the baby's head and try and sort of pinch the perineum together so, to stop it from tearing. Yeah, okay. So that, that's a big part of the bundle. The other parts of the bundle are the position which when the woman gives birth in needs to be such a position that the midwife can actually visualise the perineum adequately. The problem with that is that invariably it's a supine position. So realistically, you've got to have the woman on her back to visualize the perineum in that respect and certainly apply the hands-on approach uh, as opposed Why to- Why not all fours? Because in all, I mean, if you really want to see a perineum during birth, all fours is one of the greatest positions to see it because you can see everything and the anus. Yeah, look, it's a great position to visualize perineum. It's a really- awkward position to try and apply the hands-on position because now instead mm-hmm. of going like this, you now kind of got your arm around between her thighs trying to grab the head and you've got the, you know, parenting like that and she's probably moving so around a bit more. the position is all for the midwife's comfort in this or the it's, care provider's comfort because not just midwives that have to do this, it's doctors as well. So exactly. we're talking about positioning for midwife's comfort so that they can be the most comfortable and apply the pressure in the most efficient way. Yes, yes. And one of the studies we did, we, we saw that the midwives who applied the hands-on approach, women in that in that group gave birth, about not, about 98% of them gave birth on their back, as opposed to midwives who didn't. Who, uh, we had many more women who were giving birth in upright positions when the hands-on approach was not used. Okay, so we can just talk about this for a second, because birthing on your back came in uh, to maternity care. It was an intervention that was commenced uh, with what we believe was a King Louis the something who yep. wanted to watch his, one of his mistresses give birth. And so he would not, at the time, the midwives were catching babies, they would be on the ground 
husband and the birthing person, the woman would be either um, in a squat or leant over. And so the midwife had to be on the ground. Kings don't grovel. They don't get on the ground. They're not peasants. And so the mistress gave birth on a bed so that he could watch it from his superior height of standing or seated on a chair. And then everybody Instagrammed it and found out what um, the queen or the mistress did. And it became really popular. And this is what happens. This is cultural, right? This is what happens in birthing. So what happened was the rest of the women in the court wanted to birth on their backs. And it's, there's documentation from that time where midwives report more labour dissocia, so birth slowing down and more birth complications because, and they put it down to the position because that's the only thing that had changed. But that has stayed with us. And then if you look at how we watch birth on in movies and TVs, typically the person's on their back. Often I, I've birthed twice. I cannot imagine getting on my back. I remember the first time I gave birth, my body just instinctively bended me forward. And I was like, how do women do this on their back? So from the research, we know, right, that birthing on the back, people report it as, as less comfortable. What else do we know about birthing on the back? Well, it, as you say, it's it's what they call, it, it's not a, a sacral-free position. So you're talking about that, you know, we've got all these wonderful hormones that produce during pregnancy that help soften the, the ligaments around the pelvis, that, you know, do provide that little bit of extra flex and malleability in the pelvis, which provides, as you're talking about, provides that extra centimetre or so of room as the baby's going through. If you're lying on your back, then the sacrum gets pushed up, the coccyx gets pushed up. You you know, you don't get to use that that little bit of extra room and malleability that's there. It certainly is. It's more painful. You're kind of pushing uphill. Yeah, we don't lay down to poo, right? No. No, like, and it's and essentially the same oh, physiological it's, mechanism. It's exactly the same physiological me- mechanism. So like, if you're asking a person to birth on their back, go ask yourself to lay down a poo and see how comfortable and successful you'll be. Yes, Melanie, what would you like to say? We mute each other just so everyone, every, if you're new to this podcast, we mute each other and then we have to put our hands up when we want to talk. <laughs> it's very regulated. I don't like interrupting people. Can we... Just start from the very, very beginning of discussing the there's five elements to the perineal bundle. And the idea is that these five elements are, are used together. Although I can see in the perineal bundle documentation that the Women's Healthcare Australasia group put together that they've they've kind of they've talked about, oh, it's not mandatory. Oh, you have to ask women if they want all these things. Oh, by the way, all oh, this and that. But technically a bundle is supposed to be used all together. So this Australian bundle that this group has created recommends The first element is warm compressors on the perineum. The second element is a slow controlled birth of the head, which involves that hand positioning, hands-on positioning that you talked about where you cinch together the perineum and you apply a hand to the baby's head to in an attempt to somehow protect the perineum, I'm using inverted commas, and slow the birth of the baby's head. Then the third element is they talk about the technique when performing an, an episiotomy. The fourth element is a assessment of perineal tears, which involves putting your finger in every single woman's rectum post-birth to assess any rectal for any rectal damage, even if there's no perineal tear. And then the fifth element is accurately grading the severity of perineal tears. Mm. So that's the bundle in a nutshell. And actually anybody who wants to see the perineal bundle listed out with detail, um, I'm going to put the links up as well in the ma- in all the documentation for the mailing list and it will be underneath this, in the show notes underneath this podcast episode. So you've done, so you've done a study that's looked at the perineal bundle? 
Well, we did a study that looked at hands-off and directed pushing prior to, and this was just as the perineal bundle was was being uh, introduced. And then we did some qualitative work uh, after the uh, a couple of years after the the bundle had been introduced, looking at at midwives' experiences of it being introduced because of the surveillance and and the the sort of mandatory parts of it, and also women's experiences. And what we found was basically, you know, there are essentially four things that are probably, you know, wrong or not great about about the perineal bundle. First one is the evidence base behind it. So as Millie is saying, one of the one of the aspects is warm compressors to the, to the perineum, and that's pretty well the only component of the perineal bundle that actually has any any solid evidence base behind it. The others don't. And so um, the warm compress evidence is that it decreases third and fourth degree tears, which is yes. the whole point of the perineal bundle, right? So the perineal bundle is to reduce tearing, but mm. most its its aim is those to what we call what we classify as severe perineal tearing, which is third and fourth degree tears. And for those that don't know, that's tearing into or through the anal sphincter, so um, part of it or all the way through it. So they came up with this bundle, but the only part of it that was actually evidence-based was the warm compress. So the other four elements weren't re- evidence-based when they were brought into the bundle. No, they were not. No. So there's been a number of randomised trials that have looked at the hands-on versus hands-poised and uh, and hands-off. They've never shown any any difference in severe perineal tearing between those groups. So it doesn't seem to be, you know, they're either equally as effective or equally as ineffective as each other in, in terms of reducing severe perineal tearing. The evidence behind the changes to episiotomy are, are, are pretty weak, but we have seen significant rises in rates of episiotomy in Australia since the bundle was introduced. So before the bundle was introduced, am I right in saying that the evidence we had around episiotomies was that they should only be done if there is um, fetal distress and performing one will increase or, or expediate the birth of the baby? Yes, that's right. But what, and the research that we did just prior to the bundle coming in, we looked at, at episiotomy rates in midwives who used a hands-on approach as opposed to those who used a hands-off or hands-poised. And what we found that midwives who use a hands-on approach were two and a half times more likely to cut an episiotomy than those who didn't. But the rates of severe perineal tearing did not differ between the two. So it was not making any impact. It was not being protective of reducing severe perineal tearing. Mm-hmm. There was no evidence that episiotomies reduced severe perineal tearing, but no. we put it into the bundle. Mm-hmm. And when we put it into the bundle, we got specific about them, didn't we? Like I, I've heard, I've not seen, but I've heard midwives talking about like protractors in the birth space to measure the angle of the medialateral. So medialateral meaning it's the angle that they're cut, right? So they're cut outwards away from the anal sphincter. So the whole belief around episiotomies is that if you create this artificial tear that goes away from the anus, then you're going to prevent tearing to the anus. That's the belief around them, but there is no evidence that has ever proved that. No, not in vaginal births. There's some, you know, argument around forceps and vacuum births, they're, they're really yes. quite different because you're inserting yes. something else into the vagina, so it creates yes. extra room. Yeah, but so, with vaginal births without instrument, no evidence that it decreases tears. But we no. put it into the bundle anyway, and yes. did we get protractors? That's what I want to know. There were – we had – there were anecdotes from that, and we know that some hospitals were using variations of protractors to to help midwives gauge the the angle of the um, the episiotomy because it changed from about sort of thirty to forty degree angle from the perineum to about sixty degrees, which is really quite significant. It's almost like cutting sideways instead of angling down. And to assist them with that, there were a few protractors 
hanging around and somebody sort of came up with the idea of maybe we can have a clear piece of plastic with the line drawn on it that we can put up against Dorman's perineum. She has to be on her back again, of course. So then we know the angle we can cut through the plastic and the perineum at the same time and get the angle correct. And the bundle says when, so these are the these are the guidelines. It says when an episiotomy is indicated, it should be at a minimum of a 60 degree angle. And when I had a little look into that too, there's there's a little bit that's been one a couple of small studies that, that have suggested it, you know, it might. One of the problems with with cutting episiotomies was that it was a risk factor for third degree tears because you'd 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 taken away the integrity of the perineum, uh, and then there's the chance that the episiotomy would continue to tear through and down into the sphincter. So mm-hmm. it was always highlighted as a risk factor. So the idea of changing the angle from sort of thirty to forty degrees, sixty degrees, was to reduce the chance of the of the the tear continuing down and cutting into and cutting through the anal sphincter. So all it really did was address the risk from cutting the episiotomy in the first place, as opposed to reducing the risk of of third and fourth degree tears mm. initially. So, which is why we, we never saw any real change. And so we've now got. Sorry, we're saying just to sum, sum this up, right? We've now told people how to birth, but I'm told them what position to take, which we know is not evidence based or comfortable. Because I've never seen, and just so you know, for people listening, episiotomies are always cut with a person on their back. So we've put you on your back to do the hands poise. We know that hands poise increases the risk H- of episiotomy. On. Oh, I keep saying oh, hands poise. <laughs> hands on. Do you know why? Because I'm like, if your hands are poised, they're going to be on. Like, no, that's, that's no. my thinking. It's different. I know, but that's so, like from a from a practical sense. I'm like, if you're poising them, no, I, hands I, I, off. Consider, it's very different. Consider hands off and hands poised the same thing. Intensity is hands off. If you need to do something, yeah. then you okay. do something. So anyway, to do hands on, you have to be on the back, and that increases the risk of a PZ on me by 2.5%. So two, two and a half times. Yes. What you saw. Right. So just to sum that up, mm-hmm. just so, so people are getting where we're getting to, that's all. Yeah. The bundle was created because there's a 2 to 3% chance overall that a woman could have a third or fourth degree mm. tear. And so the intention, noble as it was, was to reduce that 2 or 3%. However, now with this bundle, we've found ourselves in a situation where one in four women, so the recent Australian and women's data says that 23 to 24% of women are getting an episiotomy now in Australia. Yes. Yeah. So it's gone from about 18% up to about 24%, which is over a period of a couple of years, it's a fairly significant rise. And the one thing that's missing, of course, is any sort of longitudinal studies have looked at the impact of of increasing the angle to 60%, you know, the the ongoing sort of sexual health of women uh, after giving birth and having these episiotomies. The perineal bundle itself lacks the evidence to do the practice in the first place. Oh, Yes. We take this opportunity to talk about how it was implemented because there are claims that the bundle is, you know, if you read um, any of Rachel Reed's stuff, who was very passionate about the perineal bundle or what she affectionately calls the perineal bungle, the fact is, is that they created this bundle with, as you say, very little evidence. Most of the elements don't have evidence to support them in the bundle. And then they rolled it out to 28 hospitals Mm -hmm. in order to test it. And all of the training process was focused around training the health professionals in those hospitals to administer the bundle. But women weren't involved in the study in a sense that they weren't told they were part of a, a research project and they didn't necessarily consent to be a part of it. Would that be right? It was, yeah, it was in some respects, it was presented as a research project, 
but actually it wasn't. It was a, more of a sort of a quality improvement. So there was no sort of testing against another group that weren't getting it. But certainly in, in terms of, of there were a number of issues in the way that it was it was rolled out. And, uh, we did a, a study with, um, with midwives in terms of their experiences of this. And what we found was because there was a, quite a bit of surveillance in the initial period after the rollout of the midwives to, to ensure they were using it. So there was a little checklist that they had to tick off and there were people wandering around with clipboards in and out of, out of the birthing rooms, making sure that they, they you know, used the hot packs and applied their hands the way they used all the elements of the bundle. So there was a lot of surveillance going on that would not normally occur within a birthing environment, which of course put people in the birthing environment that would not normally be there. Uh, And we found that, you know, probably about about a third of midwives thought, okay, well, this is a reasonable idea. They were probably hands-on midwives in a way and thought, this is kind of using parts of my practice I would normally do. So that's okay. I'll, I'll kind of go along with that. And then there are about a third of midwives who thought, well, you know, I'm being told I have to do it, that it, it's compulsory. The, the, the catch cry was every woman, every time. And so they were really just kind of, they may not necessarily agree with it, but they were just kind of compliant because it's, you know, that's their job and they didn't want to get moved off the birth suite if they weren't doing the right thing. And then probably a slightly less than third number of midwives were, as we, we often are in these situations, looking at ways to get around it. And a number of those were quite successful, I, even in terms of, you know, talking to women and sort of explaining and saying, okay, well, you have you actually have a choice. You can say no. Or birthing women specifically in positions or in in, in using water births as a means of, of sort of subverting some of the elements of the bundle itself. But four of the five components weren't evidence-based. I no. just want to keep bringing people back to that. And this is where knowing the evidence behind practice, if you're a person birthing the system, is really important because this gives you the information. You may be listening to this going, this sounds great. I really want to have it. You may be listening to this going, I don't. And I think the the biggest, one of the biggest confronting factors for many of us midwives was the rectum examinations. And I think many people still don't know birthing, going to birth, that that is a become because the, the perineal bundle isn't in all hospitals, is it? No, only those who are, are members of the WHA. Some hospitals have kind of picked up various elements of it. So if you want to know if your hospital is doing this, you have to ask your care providers at the at your antenatal appointment. And so you can ask, is this does this hospital practice perineal the perineal um, bundle or not, or elements of it? And speaking to them about, because you might be happy to have like, for, you know, you might be happy to have the warm compress element, but you not, might not be happy to have the hand on approach and episiotomy. Asking whether the rectal exam happens routinely at your hospital is also something you may want to know. So can we just explain that one just so people actually understand why that was brought in and what's it meant to achieve? Well, the the rectal exam is is supposed to to determine whether a woman has had a a third degree tear or not. So whether there's an injury that's involved um, the anal sphincter. Sometimes these these are, uh, and it's been, been quite common after a birth, if there's a, an existing tear there, that we check that tear to see whether it's actually involved the anal sphincter. And that's been routine practice for, for many, many years. And it's you know reasonable to do that. What this introduced, which was quite different, was actually doing rectal examinations on women who, who had intact perineum, so had no obvious or visible injury to the perineum at all. So the idea being that there may be some occult or some injury to 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 the anal sphincter that you may not be able to see, but you might be able to feel if you put your finger in the woman's anus and had actually had a good feel of the of the, the sphincter tissues themselves. So these are, are reasonably rare. You know, certainly they have implications for women when when they're there. But the the question is if you find one, what are you going to do about it? So what would be done about it? What's the purpose of trying to find it? 
procedure done in theatres like a third or fourth degree tear to find it or is it just once and you find it, you know about it and it can't be healed? That's the problem. They are so uncommon that we don't really have any any practice guidance in terms of, okay, what do we do now? Do you actually undergo surgery and so it's been packed together? Do you wait and see if it heals of its own accord? Do you then go on and do further ultrasound studies to see if you can determine more accurately whether it's through, only involves a few fibres or whether it's completely through the the, the sphincter itself and what you do about that. So it's it's difficult to sort of say, okay, we, we do this assessment. If we're going to do this assessment, then maybe we should have figured out up before that what we're going to do about it once we've found it. So the bundle did not advise. It just said, do the step, find yep. it, but it doesn't advise what to do thereafter. No. So just because just, we do, we, we if there is a tear there, we want to know if it's in the sphincter, if we can visibly see one. The issue that I have with this and a lot of other midwives have with it personally is that we're doing it when the perineum is intact and then we don't know what to do with it afterwards. Well, I just want to offer here, just just so you know, a, you can you might be like, yes, I want my um, I want a finger into my anus after I've had my baby. If my perineum is intact, I'm happy to have that. I'm happy for it to be checked. Other people listening to this will be like, if it's intact, if my perineum is intact and there's no visible tearing to, to my anus or perineum, I do not want a finger inside my vagina. And this is your choice to make. You are allowed to make it. You're allowed to say yes or no to anything, especially you're allowed to say yes or no to someone sticking a finger into your ass. And that's part of the problem. The the research we did with women and their experience of the bundle brought up two issues. And the first one was that, you know, we interviewed about 15, 20 women, and none of them were advised of the bundle prior during the antenatal period. So prior to the birth itself, there was no information prior to, to uh, given to them. And then for, for a number of those women, when it came to the examination, the consent process was was lacking it was you know often sort of we need to do this exam is that okay with you without actually sort of specifically saying actually it's going to involve a vaginal and a rectal exam even though your your perineum is intact so can oh, I, i'm just going to stick my finger into your anus now and and it happened yes. without a pause or a question yes and sometimes that wasn't even raised it was just oh we need to check down below sort of thing to make sure you're like, okay is it all right yep uh, and then lo and behold that involved a rectal exam they weren't kind of prepared for and certainly hadn't consented to and the the idea of a rectal examination because when this was introduced i don't think midwives were routinely doing rectal examination and so then we're all of a sudden told okay now you've got to check their bottom and uh, their anus and see if there's any tears that have gone through there what does i mean i don't know about other midwives but if they're so incredibly rare most midwives don't know what this actually feels like on digital examination with their finger. Well, and they don't know what it feels like normally either. There's no comparison. I've never done a rectal examination as a midwife. It's not that we don't only know what that feels like. We also don't know what normal feels like post-birth, right? Something you're trying to get out to, Melanie? Well, what I'm saying is, is that we've been told to assess the rectum, but like you said, we don't know what the usual integrity of the rectum is supposed to feel like because we're not used to routinely checking rectums. And then if we did find something, would we even have the capacity to recognise it with how rare it is? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think, you know, one of the points, the recommendations the bundle does make is that the two, two clinicians should be present when the, the perineum is being assessed to see if there's a severe perineal tearing there, which is, you know, probably fair enough in terms of we're not very often very, very good at, at picking these up, as you say. But it doesn't really sort of specify, okay, what are the qualifications and the experience and training of these clinicians are. So for midwives who've done perineal suturing for some time, they'll probably have a reasonable idea of what a third and fourth degree feels like because they've done you know, perineal 
rectal exams are, are kind of a real, relatively routine part of undertaking perineal suturing. But for those younger midwives or those who are not trained in perineal suturing, then it's going to be quite difficult, say, to get an idea of what a third and fourth degree tear is going to feel like when the rest of the perineal tissue is intact. Yeah. And so I'm looking down the list now of the elements of the perineal bundle. We've already decided, yes, warm compresses, good evidence. We can do that to reduce the incidence of third or fourth degree tears. And you can apply a warm compress with women in any position. Mm. I can vouch for that because we do it if women give birth on land in physiological positions at home. We've determined that element two of encouraging the slow controlled birth of the head with a hands-on approach doesn't have an overwhelming level of evidence to support this hands-on idea. And what compounds that issue is that when midwives adopt a hands-on approach, 98% of them are are, are doing that with women in supine and lying on their back positions. And midwives, and as you said, midwives who are using a hands-on technique are two or three times more likely to cut an episiotomy. And so already element two is problematic. And then we're talking about techniques of performing episiotomies in element three, which again, you said really poor research for understanding what the best technique is for doing that. And we've then just poked holes in the assessment process that's included in the perineal bundle. And as you said too, episiotomy rates have gone up significantly since the perineal bundle has been increased. We're currently at about 23 or 24%. Has the bundle noticeably reduced the percentage of women having third or fourth degree tears from what you've seen? That's a that's a good, really good question. And the thing is, we don't know. So the WHA on their website produced some data from 2019, and they highlighted a 10% reduction in third and fourth degree tears amongst liberous women. Now, that sounds great. The problem with that is we don't know whether that's raw data or whether it's been adjusted for things that will, you know, normally cause greater risk of of third and fourth degree tears like large babies and that sort of thing. When we look at data from overseas, so in the UK, the Royal College of Obstetricians and, and College of Midwives introduced a very similar bundle across the UK, and they looked at a, they did a, a before and after study of just over 42,000 women, and they reported a 10%, a 20% reduction. So they said they saw their rate drop from 3.3 down to 3%. And in terms of, you know, statistical analysis, that was barely statistically significant. It just kind of crept into that statistical significant range. And that was a 20% reduction. So if we're only seeing a 10% reduction, half of 20%, it's probably not going to be statistically significant. And that's relevant because when you say something's not statistically significant, what you're saying is that this can happen by chance, that there are a whole lot of other things that might be influencing it. So when you're seeing a, a you know a 10% reduction, well, that might just be a kind of a rounding error or something that's occurred completely different to the bundle itself. We don't have the statistical, um, you know, robust processes behind it to actually demonstrate that that's occurring. And the other thing is, you know, okay, we've seen a 10% reduction. That doesn't kind of talk to the application of this bundle and the impact of the increasing episiotomies and giving birth on the back, et cetera, that's had upon the tens of thousands of women that the bundle has been applied to, to get a fairly minimal reduction in perineal tearing. And the other thing that I suspect, and here's my presupposition about the findings, because their website really uh, says that, so they put a number of 473 women, less women, sustained a third or fourth degree tear as a result of the package. However, I'm wondering if they replace those third and fourth degree tears, so those 400 
and 73 women who they say had a reduction, they've just replaced tears with episiotomies. And they haven't anywhere on the website or in their data reported on the episiotomy rate. They only keep reporting on the fact that there's been a reduction in third or fourth degree tears. But is it entirely possible that although they've reduced tears, they've done so because they increased episiotomies? Yes. And and the other thing is that, that, you know, what we don't know is how, because we know that episiotomies were actually a risk factor for third and fourth degree tears. So the idea was increasing the angle will reduce that risk factor. So how much of that reduction in in third and fourth degree tears is associated with a a change in the way that episiotomies has been cut and doesn't really have any sort of reflection on the other elements. I think another really sort of important thing to talk about in terms of effectiveness is that this is not the only bundle around. There are other bundles that are actually less prescriptive and also use a hands-poised approach. And one of those is a stomp bundle out of the UK. And they reported close to a 50% reduction in third and fourth degree tears by promoting birth in upright positions, uh, using much better communication between between midwives and women during that, that process to actually slow down the birth of the head uh, that pivotal moment and no increase in episiotomy rates without all the prescriptive elements that we see in the Australian bundle, they were actually much more successful. So, you know, if we we're going to base this on evidence, why are we not using the stomp bundle instead of the WHA one? I would go one step further and go, why aren't we using all the aspects that we know actually reduce tearing, which Mm. is pelvic floor exercises during pregnancy, which is perineal massage, doesn't just happen at birth. It has to be, I mean, I'd argue it's preconception, but it's that pregnancy, it's getting people to know their space. We have the evidence on what reduces tearing. No, it's not always linked to third and fourth degree tearing. It's it's generalised perineal tearing, but we should be trying to reduce that as well and using that. And then my other issue with it is the long-term follow-up and it's not just you know we're just looking at one outcome we're not looking at everything that surrounds that like the emotional health the long-term physical and emotional health that people experience so oh yes and i think the limited scope of the of the bundle is a really good point it's you know it's it's very much about what clinicians do to women at a specific point in time and the the absence of any advice around uh, antenatal perineal massage, which again is one of these these few aspects that we actually have good evidence of that actually reduces all forms of perineal tearing that wasn't included in the bundle itself. So it's it's kind of a you know what we can do to women at that point in time sort of sort of approach, as opposed to holistic care. And so yes. people don't even know that they're in like you know that they're that that the bundle is going to be applied to them, you know, and then there's, there's no discussion around the perineum in antenatal care at all. And- so when you look at the bundle paperwork, it's all very lovely. They do a lot of lip service to you know don't use this perineal bundle if women are in water. You can't apply the perineal bundle at all if a woman's in water. They talk about training clinicians to make sure that they educate women about the perineal bundle and that they keep talking about in the documentation, you know, this all has to be done with consent because applying the perineal bundle is an intervention in the birth process. Mm. So we've got to understand that it's not just the unfolding of physiological birth, it's an intervention. But your study of the women that you did in, because I read your 2002 paper, none of the women reported being educated about the perineal bundle. They didn't know that they were going to risk that they were receiving an intervention. No, that's right. So the 15 old women that we we interviewed, and that and they were from across various hospitals in Queensland. So it wasn't just one hospital. None of them uh, reported it receiving any information antenatally, and very little information during during birth itself regarding the perineal bundle. It was only when the elements were with 
sort of being applied that some of them were actually uh, approached and, and provided with, or consent was actually sought. And sometimes that wasn't, you know, consent during labour and birth is really tricky and, and often kind of fails the, the, the test for, for really informed consent. You know, if you're someone's just given birth and you say to them, well, we're just going to check your perineum and see if you had a third and fourth degree tear, and that involves a rectal exam, well, you need to kind of talk about that and the, and the pros and cons and, you know, and what are the alternatives and provide someone with some time to sort of think about that as opposed to, we're just going to do it mm-hmm. because it's and routine. And that's the whole birth space all like, oh. over that's the whole birth space in general, really. So, Nigel, I so I was part of an ACM panel. I attended. I wasn't on the panel, but you were on the panel. And the ACM had invited two of the people who had created the perineal bundle, and you were there, and we were all there watching. There was a big turnout from memory. It <laughs> was, was, yes. <laughs> the ACM was pretty impressed, which tells you, you know, I guess what we're trying to say is that perineal bundle is very controversial hmm. uh, in the midwifery world, but also in the academic world. And I got the impression at that at that panel that the the creators of the bundle were quite defensive, and they kind of refused to acknowledge that although their aim and intent in creating the bundle was you know was wholesome and genuine, that they wanted to reduce the third and fourth degree tears, but they refused to admit that there was this unintended or unforeseeable consequence that it hasn't worked. The bundle hasn't worked in the way they intended. Can you see either on the horizon that there's going to be some actual research done on the effectiveness of the bundle or is there a possibility that it will be dumped altogether based on the controversy around its application and implementation? Uh, it'd be good to see some research around that the implementation or, or the effectiveness of the bundle. It, it's always, that will always be done sort of, well, it can now only be done retrospectively because it wasn't introduced as a, a research proposal, which was unfortunate. I just kind of jumped straight into it. Uh, there are always limitations around retrospective studies and just how accurate they are. So collecting evidence to whether it's effective or not is always going to be, at this point, it's going to be tricky. And sorry, what was the other part of your question was, oh, whether it was going to change in the future? Yeah, I'm wondering if in the absence of, well, you know. She wants to know if it's getting dumped. I'm pretty getting sure. Dumped. Getting dumped. Yeah, I mean, I, just in light of it, I mean, I've delved, I've looked into this. There's been discussion about it. We know it was implemented without any actual evidence that it worked. We know that four of the elements don't have evidence to support their use. We know that they haven't spoken about things like directed pushing, which we know increases the risk of perineal tears. They haven't addressed things that actually do reduce perineal tears. And in light of all this, is there a possibility that we can just go, oh, crap, we've actually stuffed this up. And unfortunately, there's been the unintended consequence of firstly, not reducing the rates of perineal trauma in the amounts that they had hoped, but also increasing episiotomy rates. And also, it's not very, we, you've done the research on the acceptability of this intervention. How do women feel about having the perineal bundle applied to their birth space? In, in terms of the women, it, it varied considerably. So some were kind of, well, okay, it would be nice to know, you know this was being done. And, uh, and, we, and they appreciate that everyone's make, take, you know, taking these efforts to reduce that sort of birth trauma. Others were, you know, and I think we've got to sort of acknowledge the sort of, you know, high rates of sort of sexual assault and sexual abuse in the community as well. So there were certainly a number of women who were kind of, well, you know, I'd really like to be asked about that because I'm, you know, a survivor of sexual assault and that kind of, you know, touching of the parent 
opening in a vagina and that sort of thing is, is really who's, who doesn't in what context is really quite important to me. And that was sort of one of the big issues that came through in our, our most, re- most recent paper in, in terms of, okay, we need to have a conversation around this and the consent process around the perineal bundle because of that needs to be really strong uh, and it currently isn't and that was and, I, and we would have we argued in that paper and I argued in that that webinar that that was actually a foreseeable problem with with the bundle that we were we know that there is an issue in terms of consent particularly around women who are survivors of sexual assault during child uh, consent during childbirth that exists and there's good evidence around that and we know that there's a lot of evidence around you know obstetric violence and how women perceive that as assault during during labor and birth and then into that we drop this bundle with saying that for every woman every time with a, a fairly sort of you know with a pamphlet and not much else to to support it and the impact on midwives was was grossly underestimated by the WHO mm-hmm. as well you know they didn't didn't respect the fact that probably upwards of about 40% of midwives were practicing a hands off hands poised approach which was effectively outlawed once the hospitals introduced the bundle, they all had to use a hands-on, a hands-on approach, which was, you know, something that they clearly, as professionals, considered, rejected, and and developed their practice around using a hands poised or a hands hands-off approach, particularly around water births. I mean, you know, they, you know, from my perspective, the the evidence around tears in water births kind of seriously calls into question the effectiveness of any of these bundles. We've known from, from large studies overseas that the giving birth in water, which invariably uses a hands-off approach. The um, rates of perineal tearing are no greater than those women who give birth on land uh, using yeah. a, a hands-on approach. From a midwifery perspective, you know, when you said look at the current workforce shortages and the current job satisfaction, this plays into that massively too because mm. what we're saying is you have no autonomy over your practice and your experience and the evidence doesn't matter. You will do as you're told. And that will affect whether your, your job satisfaction and whether you stay in the profession or not. We're seeing this now with all the changes. Midwives don't want to work in the system because it's not why they did midwifery. It's not the way, and they're not able to practice to their full scope of practice or in an autonomous way. This is not just about the people we're providing care for. This is about workforce as well. Oh, yes, yes. And I think in terms of, of longevity, well, we know, you know, there are already some hospitals, not not many, but a small number of hospitals that are cherry picking bits out of the of the the bundle itself. There are a few that have kind of have ditched the, the rectal exam or have been less prescriptive about various elements of it. And, you know, generally midwives are, have had a century of practice of being subversive. So Mm. We're very good at at kind of working around the system when we need to. Yeah, but that's the hard thing, right? Because often we get clever and we get tricky and we hide things. Mm. But then that doesn't—that's not good for evidence because it's not. It no, looks not at like all. we're conforming. So then we prove, oh, this bundle's working, but we haven't been doing the bundle. And mm. you know, we've really got to stop hiding what we're doing. We've actually got to be rebellious and going, we're not doing it, and this actually isn't working. Um, but that's really tricky when you've got a mortgage to pay and you have. To turn up to your work. Can I just ask the the study that you did on the satisfaction? Was that just with the twenty people? Has there been anything larger on the perineal bundle satisfaction in Australia that's been uh, for the women? That was there was a qualitative study of their experiences. So that was with sort of 15, 20 people, women that we interviewed. Yeah. So it wasn't sort of looking strictly at, at satisfaction. It was really looking at, at the, their overall sort of experience of, of the bundle, sort of antenatally and and intrapartum as well. And as I say, you know, some women were quite happy with it. They were very appreciative of the efforts, but there were also those other women that really told really quite some heart-rendering stories of 
of, you know, actually saying, no, don't touch my perineum and midwives and saying, no, but I have to do this because it's part of our routine care. I mean, again, this is not one size fits all. And it's about having the information to make the decision that's right for you. So if you're currently pregnant, find out what is happening at with your care provider and at the place that you're choosing to birth, get informed and make some decisions in your birth mapping because it's not about consent because a consent a, a, a implies that you're going to say yes it's about making a decision and being when would you be willing to have it when would you not it's super important that we have this information so that we can make better decisions in the moment that feel right for us not only then but afterwards and the thing with qualitative research is it's not like with quantitative research where you need these huge numbers to get a result like you you keep researching until you reach a point of what we call saturation in which case you know we can make a reasonable assumption that you've captured the broad scope of women's experiences of that intervention Nigel is there anything that you really need to say about the perineal bundle that we haven't already fumbled through no I think the biggest point is is the fact that you know it it has been presented as the best and only available approach and what we know particularly from from the research we've got from overseas that it's not that there are other bundles that are less prescriptive that actually promote the or use the physiology of birth, upright positions, uh, really good sort of honest communication between midwives and, and women during birth and, you know, preparation antenatally as well that produce better better results. So I think we just need a better bundle. Mm. And the bundle says... We call it that, the better bundle. better mm. bundle. And the, the perineal bundle in it says that this bundle is not mandatory. Yet on the ground, when you spoke to the midwives, because you did a research study, you asked some, you asked women, but you also asked midwives of their experience of the bundle. What were midwives' experience of the bundle in in the sense that like the bundle says it's not mandatory, but is that what midwives experienced? No, their their experience was that they were essentially told that it was mandatory. And again, it comes back to the, you know, they were told that it it was to apply to every woman every time unless they specifically said no. So it was essentially, it was an opt-out process. And also that there was there was no opportunity for any sort of discussion around the around the evidence base around you know okay this is the evidence we're applying this is this is why we think it's important that was never never uh, discussed the WHA have been very opaque about what evidence they used to underpin the bundle we've asked them for a list of their the you know the papers and research that they they considered and we we're using to justify it they've never applied to us with a, a list of of research that they used. Well, the leaflet only has the leaflet only has like 24, 25 references, which is pitiful if you're trying to apply five element bundle. Um, yeah. Yes, well, of course, you know, as I say, we've got randomized control trials that compared hands poised and hands off to hands on, uh, and a Cochrane review of that systematic review, which and they all, you know, all came to the conclusion that that there is no difference in terms of severe perineal injury between the two techniques. It's so I had a look at this. I looked into this women's health care. It's called Women's Health Care Australasia. Mm. And WHA. WHA. Uh, mm. WCHA. Okay. And who, okay. who are they? And are there midwives on there? And are there academics on their board? Uh, well, they're a member organization. So um, I have to say, I'm not overly familiar with their structure, but, but certainly there, you know, there are within their membership, there are hospitals and, and representatives of, of midwifery and, and obstetrics there. But whether, you know, again, part of the problem with this is a lot of the, the membership particularly from the midwife's perspective, are, are either clinical or managerial and not necessarily going to have the the 
experience and skills to assess research evidence and argue for and against it. Yeah. I think, you know, that the WHA said, well, the panel we used was we had equal numbers of, you know, obstetricians and midwives and and consumers, but equal numbers doesn't equal equity. And and obviously the process hasn't been successful in the sense that they haven't used evidence to create the bundle. Mm. Okay. So five minute wrap up then of the perineal bundle. Mel wants to draw. I loved. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh my gosh, I accidentally, I accidentally muted you. And I just love that you asked if it was going to be dropped because it has no evidence. But that's pretty much our whole podcast, right? Like I was like that with CTGs. Like, okay, can we drop them now? Like, can we just go back to basics? I feel like there's this real, oh, what we're well, I doing wondered, is not working. Like I wondered, because it's a relatively new intervention, like 2018 is when they sort of started trying it out we're at the point where we it's not ingrained in practice like ctg is where if we dropped it all of a sudden clinicians would feel just ill-equipped to do their job but if we drop the perineal bundle at this point we could go back to what we would do whatever was happening before right we could just go whoa that was a blip in time let's forget we ever did that come up with a better way of preventing the unfortunate situation but and I, th- I think it's important to note that, that, that you know, this is not a, a new recent conversation or, or, or discussion. You know, we've been having this this discussion now for, for over 150 years. You know, mm. I've, I've got a paper here in front of me by a guy called Goodall from 1871, which is, um, uh, you know, essentially a, a literature review of, of perineal protection strategies that he wrote in 1871 for a couple of years, 100 years before that. Mm. Uh, and he's putting up exactly the same thing. You know, he's saying that, you know, some people put their hands on the perineum, some don't, some point their fingers upwards, downwards, some use packs, some don't use, you know, packs on the perineum, et cetera. Uh, and this was 150 years ago. So we've had these very, very sort of cyclic approaches. And I think probably, you know, we've, yes, we've had the, the perineal bundle in now for about three or four years. It's probably a good time to take a step back. Okay, let's do some really good research around this. Let's really look at the evidence that what we've got for what actually works and what we know that kind of doesn't work. None of this needs to be applied Strictly because, and I think one of the things that this always kind of bugged me about this was it denied clinicians and women the the opportunity to have a discussion around what was, particularly for women, what was important to them and what they might like to use and what choices and, and alternatives were out there. So if we do a five minute wrap up, well, what have we, we've learned about the perineal bundle is that there's five steps, warm compresses. Uh, hands-on approach to the birth process where perineums and babies are touched and manipulated during their exit, which relies on a on-your-back position. Perineal assessments using rectal examinations for all women. And, oh, yes, and the technique when performing an episiotomy. So do we do we know the numbers for how many hospitals have adopted it now? Because there's quite, I had a look at the W, the Women's Healthcare Australasia Group and quite a big number of hospitals are part of it. Do, yeah, I don't know if we have numbers on. Uh, I don't know how often they update their okay. um. The, 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 so we, we don't really know how many, and not only that, we don't know how many hospitals are, are using all of the bundle or only various parts of it. Right. So there's five mel- elements, five elements of the perineal bundle, and they say it's not mandatory, but midwives have experienced it as mandatory. Hmm. The idea of the bundle is that women are supposed to be educated antenatally, but your research has shown that women don't recall being educated antenatally about the perineal bundle. No, that doesn't seem to be happening. Right. And it's anecdotally increased the episiotomy rate significantly. Well, we've had a rise in, in episiotomy rates 
that coincides in the years that coincide with the introduction of the of the um, of the bundle itself, okay. as yet, and we've got you know we'll hopefully have a look at some of this data later on in the year, but we we at the moment we don't have any ev- any evidence sort of directly associating one with the other, but mm-hmm. it, it's a reasonable assumption at this point, I think. Right, and I'm just going to read a line from a paper you wrote with Kirsten Small because I love it. This was in your paper, um, how a perineal care bundle impacts midwifery practice in Australian hospitals. And it was said in the paper, the introduction of the perineal bundle acts as an exemplar of obstetric dominance in Australian maternity care. And we recommend midwives advocate autonomy, women's autonomy and their own by using clinical judgment, evidence and woman-centred care, which to me is, which is research language for the perineal bundle has further medicalised childbirth and midwives should use their clinical judgment and evidence of which there isn't any to guide their practice as well as obviously the women's choice and so if we think objectively about the perineal bundle it doesn't help with clinical care that is appropriate to women because it's a it's a birth by numbers formula and so it doesn't allow autonomy for women doesn't allow autonomy for midwives And although the bundle has wording which suggests that it should be done with consent and that it's not mandatory, the experience of midwives and women is that's not happening. It's it's being applied quite heavy-handedly. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) All those assumptions. All right. Final words, Nigel, about the perineal bundle. What do you really think? Uh, Look, for me, it was a bit of a trip back to the future. We were doing this sort of thing, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and then and then we we started getting it. And then I thought we, when we started doing the hands off and hands poised, and we there was no dramatic increase in in perineal injuries following that. That all seemed pretty good. And then I think you know we we got the backlash in terms of well you know it's all these midwives just doing stuff and we don't know what they're doing and that's not what we used to do. And um, I remember somebody commenting on on the the hoop trial, which is one of the big trials that looked at hands hands on versus hands poised, and saying. You know, we've been misled by this. We know instinctively that putting the hands on is going to be better. I'm thinking, well, actually, we, we're trying to get away from that sort of, ins- of non-evidence-based discussion. So I think, it, you know, we really need to sort of respect each other's professional approach. There are probably some good elements in the bundle, and for some people it works well, but for a lot of midwives, as I say, who are practising, legitimately practising a hands-poised approach and, and taking other approaches to managing perineal injury, uh, their practice was was it needs to be equally recognised as, as as appropriate. Amazing. That's a wrap. Episode 19, The Perineal Bundle. I can also, other resources I can recommend are, well, the Midwives Cauldron podcast did an amazing episode on this. And I know I've mentioned their podcast before, but actually we're all midwifery sisters in solidarity, adding to the pool of information about this. So I think it's a great additional listen is the perineal bungle episode of the Midwives Cauldron. Rachel Reed has done a great blog post addressing a lot of these issues that we've discussed as well. In the, if you're on the mailing list, you will get full text articles from of the research papers we've been discussing today in this podcast, including some of Nigel's work. And Nigel will be with us. Oh, can I add in two things, two recommendations? I'm going to be biased, but I did a 
webinar for two and a half hours and it's 10 bucks and you can watch it called preparing your pelvic space and the lowdown on pushing so you can buy that and it's not evident my programs aren't evidence-based but they do include pelvic floor exercises uh in a very holistic way so you can check those out if you're pregnant as well but nigel is going to be joining us on next week's episode as well that's what you're going to say before i cut you off mel um where we dive into sterile water injections awesome that's a wrap thanks nigel See you next week, Nigel. Okay, see you again. (laughs) Gorgeous. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>